Amen. You can have a seat. There are two scripture passages this morning. The first is 1 John 2, 18 to 27, which you can find on page 1858 in the Pew Bible. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. The second passage is chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, found on page 1860. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Thanks, Sharon. Hey, guys. Morning. This passage, though it sounds really combative, and there's a bunch of talk of antichrists and stuff like that, and it sounds like we're going to have a good end-time sermon, is in some ways really about the question of what real spirituality is. The word spirituality isn't in the text, but the word spirituality doesn't really have a root in the ancient world. People in the ancient world didn't really talk that way. And, um, but that is what John is talking about. He's talking about our internal experiences of ourselves and whatever else might be in there. And how that authenticates or how that can teach us true spiritual truths, how it can lead to self-deception, how it can verify things, how it, what it's made up of, and what actually counts as spiritual and what doesn't count as spiritual and where that even comes from. So, for example, in, um, in the last service— during the song right before, during the, the offering song, 
like 20 people stood up and nobody else did. And in this service, almost everybody on the floor stood up, but nobody in the balcony did, right? So who's more spiritual? Was that a spirit? Like, why did everybody stand up here? And generally speaking, it's because everybody's like, oh, we're all standing up now, right? Is that a corporate spirit? Is that, was that spirit? What, what, right? In the last service, in one of the songs we were singing through, and it was about, um, about Jesus being crucified. And while I was singing, I was thinking, like, that moment, nobody knew what that meant yet. Like, it had happened, and Jesus has died on the cross, and he hadn't even been taken down, and it had been accomplished. Jesus said, it is finished, and nobody knew what that meant. And when that kind of, like, came, that thought sort of came into my mind while I was singing, I kind of felt some weird psychologically peaceful sensation that created the physical symptom of goosebumps start on this side of my head and my shoulder, pass diagonally through my body, and sort of exit my right hand. Now, what was that? Was that spiritual? Was that the Holy Spirit? Was that my psychological reaction to a theological realization? Was it both? Right? Um, I spent 14 hours in the car in about the last 30 hours driving to Kentucky and back so that I could be in Kentucky for two hours. Because my friend Manohar was graduating with his PhD in Asbury Seminary, and none of his family in India could be there. And um, they, th they think I'm family. And so I needed to be there for them. So I was in the car 14 hours, and it sounds like I'm a road warrior, but really Luke drove almost the whole way. <laughs> right? That's one of the things interns do, is they go on road trips with me. <laughs> you laugh, but I've never used pornography on a road trip. I've never had an inappropriate relationship with a woman on a road trip, and I get to mentor their—it's it's really great. Anyway, so we're on this road trip, and um, is that spiritual? Driving 14 hours to spend two hours with somebody, completing a nearly decade-long accomplishment, hoping that God's going to—is that spiritual? I, right? When my 13-year-old, who hasn't seen me in two days, comes up, runs up, and hugs me, and I feel warm inside, and I assume she feels something similar, is that spiritual? Right? All of those things are accompanied by internal states. Something bubbles up in the emergent internal self. Is whatever bubbles up in the emergent internal self authentic? Is it an anointing? Is it spiritual? Is it authentic to follow it? Right? I mean, if that's true, then, no, then I should never run more than about 30 steps. Right? Like, have you ever had this deal, like, when you don't exercise for a while, and then you, like, get back in it? You're like, I'm gonna go running, right? And you've run, like, literally two-tenths of a mile, and what bubbles up in your emergent self is, that was a great run. I think that was—I mean, we're definitely in shape now, and we, I think we can stop. I mean, whatever calories we needed to burn have been burned. Our, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had experience. That's what happens. You start having these emergent thoughts that are like, it's time to stop, because your body is like rebelling and being like, we don't do this. We don't do this. And it sounds like your own voice, or it's like some other voice, and it's like, we don't need to run. That's, this isn't important. We've done it. You did a great job. This—we've we've succeeded. Let's just, right? That's, that's part of the emergent self. Should you listen to the emergent self? Is the emergent self spirit? Right? You'd be like, well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible uses like 20 different words for the internal human states. I mean, you want to get a Christian turned around, start saying, okay, what does the Bible mean by heart? 
and let, just let them talk for a while and then say, great, what does the Bible mean by soul? And then let them talk for a while and then say, what does the Bible mean by spirit? And just let them talk. Then be, what does the Bible mean by mind? And before you know it, they're like, wait, I already said that for this one. And I said this, something else for that one. And before you realize it, it becomes very clear that these all overlap. And if you don't already sort of know what they basically mean, we can't explain it to you. Because what goes on inside of us, what we call consciousness, is this incredibly varied, decently unpredictable, seemingly random, strange experience of between 1 and 25 voices, depending on your current mental state, that it's fairly difficult to figure out. And out of that fountain of inner life comes something we call spirituality. Now, what are we supposed to do with all that? What of the emergent inner life that we call mind or spirit or consciousness are we supposed to go along with? What's authentic? What's inauthentic? What's authentically coming about but morally terrible? And it matters a lot. For example, if you believe that whatever bubbles up is by definition authentic because it bubbles up, You'll jump into bed with the first person you feel it all bonded with. It'll look like a modern TV show. You don't even have to name one because they all act this way, right? As opposed to having things that kind of bubble up and you're like, that's a terrible idea that will destroy everybody's life. That is sheer emergent narcissism. But there has to be another part of the inner life that distinguishes that part of the inner life. Which one are we listening to? On what principle and why? You see, so what, what John says is, he says, listen, there's a kind of view of spirituality. There's a way that people use their inner experience, experiential spirituality where they create this whole other religious thing that sounds like it is superior spiritually to everything else, and it's not. And you need to be really careful about it. And so when it comes to spirituality, or what this passage calls an anointing, related to the theme of 1 John, which is assurance, you could summarize what John says like this, that the anointing that affirms Christ can assure you. If the spiritual enlightenment, illumination, and knowledge that you've received in your inner experience affirms Jesus as the Christ and who he has been shown to be, then the fact that you have that internal spiritual experience that affirms that demonstrates that it is the Spirit of God working in you. And if it's the Spirit of God working in you, then you have really come to Christ. And if you've really come to Christ, you are saved and you belong to Jesus and you should feel assured by that, which is great. Now there's, there's, we gotta break this down to three parts. One is, what is the problem with spirituality that we really all have to face? Every human in every era. It's exactly the same for us now in 2016 as it was in 75 AD or whenever this was written, right? The spirituality, though it is a real part of faith, because it's a real part of being human, is also a common source of false assurance and d- real deception. How many people have you talked to that because something felt like it came up authentically from the inside, feel like it is therefore true 
and they feel totally assured mentally, morally, personally that they should do whatever that is. And you know darn well it's going to hurt other people. It's going to hurt them. It's, it's clearly poppycock. Like it is, like they're like, oh, God's leading me in this direction. And you're like, no, he isn't. And it's so obvious to you, but for them, it feels so authentic, so right. Because it emerged from a place that they can't undermine. And because they don't know where it emerged from, it must have come out of the fountaining vacuum of something spiritually pure. And therefore, it's assuring And because all of us want to feel secure, because we all have a certain insecurity that has to be quieted, finding security somehow, we are all interested in. And so therefore, if there is some way to tap into some internal thing that can make us feel assured because of how it emerged, that is a very attractive place for us to find our assurance. Because guess what? The stuff that bubbles up inside of you is always going to affirm. You, right? And if what affirms you is what affirms you, what does that mean is always going to be affirmed? You, right? Unless you have like a really insecure like hate yourself voice, which is a whole other thing, right? But this is where you get the kind of like, yeah, it's, it's it's a circle of like, I'm affirming me, me's affirming I, I'm affirming me. Man, I'm just really on the right track. And meanwhile, everybody in your life is like, oh my gosh. Um, The way John talks about it, the word spirituality isn't here. In fact, there's only one or two words in the whole Bible that could be translated spirituality because people just didn't talk that way. But he talks about spirits as that which animates people in terms of what they believe and what they think and how they act and how they feel. And so he says in chapter 4, he says, listen, don't believe every spirit because— Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, false prophets are people that teach content or knowledge, right? And he says, that is the result of a spirit. Like, there is a spiritual place or a particular spirit or a spiritual way of thinking. And that is animating the speaker who is a true teacher or a false prophet. And so the anointing leads to a certain kind of teaching, which makes sense if you think about what John says in this passage where he says, you have an anointing and therefore you all have knowledge. He's assuming that the internal real spiritual experience of the Holy Spirit that we have does have an attending set of convictions that are confirming of real knowledge. But what it also presumes, if you assume the other side of the telephone conversation, is that the false teachers are telling them there's a kind of spiritual anointing you need so that you could have the spiritual knowledge I have. And John is saying, no, 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 you already have that, right? You have an anointing from the Holy One. So although spirituality is part, a big part of Christian faith, that is dealing with what's going on inside, that is a big part of Christian faith. It's also a place that is really subject to manipulation from the outside, which is the main focus here, but also in self-deception, which is a focus in chapter one, and from personal insecurity on the inside, which is a focus of chapter three. And he says, listen, These people he refers to as antichrists, which I'll get to in just a second, he said, 
I write these things to you. So this whole passage, we know why John is writing it to us. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now, Antichrist sounds really mean, especially when he says anybody who doesn't acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 2 and that Jesus came in the flesh in chapter 4 is an antichrist. That sounds really mean. But he is not talking about you if you're like in doubt and you don't know if you believe in Jesus. That's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to, to those who advocate and seek to persuade others that Jesus is not the Christ in the historical sense in which he has been witnessed to by those who were eyewitnesses, and that he didn't actually come in the flesh, which might sound kind of weird, but listen, when you get involved in an ethereal kind of sense of spirituality, and you redefine spirituality that way, it always leads to a diminishing of the importance of our physicalness. And if you already assume that it is the internal, mystical, ethereal, ineffable, internal light that is all of, all of this is an illusion, but this internal spiritual self is the real self. When you start believing that, you start believing that this thing doesn't matter that much. And what that always leads to is, therefore, I can do what I want with this thing, and I don't have to do what I'm told with this thing. So it usually leads to what's called antinomianism. The law does not apply to me physically, because what I really am is this spiritual thing and not this physical thing. And you see, if you believe in the historical Jesus, you can't ever believe that. Because the historical Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh as true humanity, embodied, demonstrating that it was always the purpose of God for us to be embodied spiritual creatures. And in the, in the last days, when you actually get to Christian eschatology, in heaven, we're actually not ethereal spirits playing ethereal harps on ethereal clouds. We're actually embodied physical creatures created with a resurrection body, which may be in some ways better than this one, but still a physical body. And so we're not just composite creatures now of both spirit and and body. We will be always. We were made to be this way. Your body is not a prison. And when Paul says that we will be, we will be freed from the tent of this body in 2 Corinthians, right after that he speaks about receiving a new body and a new habitation, meaning that the, the, when this body dies, when we go on, when God fully redeems us, he will create a new habitation because we're going to be embodied forever. And as far as we can tell, that will be true of Jesus the Christ, that the second person of the Trinity, that God will himself be eternally embodied, which is a little—that's a pretty high place for embodiedness, which doesn't allow us to be like, hey, being spiritual means like feeling this thing inside, and then you go sleep with whoever you want. Now— it's really appealing, though, when people talk about spirituality this way. Because, as I've already just alluded to, we are all looking for a moral out. <laughs> Desperately. Both negatively and positively. We're all wanting to do whatever we want with our body. 
we're looking for freedom from moral constraint, and we don't want the positive moral obligations of doing what's good. So not only do we want to be able to do what's wrong, we want to be able to—we we want to be free of the responsibility to sacrificially love other people and to be exploited for the good of others, which is our real duty and what we're really here for. And because we want out of that, we're already morally predisposed to find this way of talking about spirituality that John is speaking against very appealing. But in addition to that, it's also that everything in the world, no matter how amazing it is, feels normal after a while. People who have been kings for 20 years aren't amazed at their throne anymore or that people bow to them or do what they're told. Generals tell people to do stuff and they just go do it. And after they've been a general for a while, it's kind of like, yeah. You're like, wait, you just told those people to do something? And they just, there's a story about the Carter administration. So Jimmy Carter becomes president. And he sits down with one of the joint chiefs and he says, okay, when you're the president, how do you actually move an aircraft carrier from the Philippines, like, to southern India? And he's like, well, you write a, you write a memo to the Joint Chiefs. They tell this, and they, he, like, explains the chain of command. And apparently what Carter said was, but how do I know that the aircraft carrier actually gets there? At which point the general was like, sir, I don't think you understand how the chain of command works. We tell people to do stuff, and they do it. Right? And it's understandable that Carter would not have known that because before that he had been a pastor. And when you tell people to do stuff, they don't do it. <laughs> Sorry, is that funny? I hope that's funny. Um, you, so, you know, it's just like, I, like, so for example, today is my um, 16th um, wedding anniversary with my wife. I've known her longer than I didn't know her. We've known each other for 19 and a half years, and um, it's a great accomplishment you just get if you don't, if you don't quit, right? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for cheering for me not quitting and being a liar. I appreciate—no, I'm just kidding. Um, she's this real—like, people who meet my wife, they're like, your wife is so great. Like, the people who go through—the women who go through the mentoring program, almost all of them tell me, I sat down and had coffee with your wife, but before she placed me with one, I was hoping that she'd place me with herself. And of course, we have four children. She can't. Unless you can fold laundry really fast. And um, because she's great, and I don't hardly notice that. She's been my wife for 16 years. I've known her for 19 and a half years. Like every once in a while, I'm like, she's just really great. But most of the time, she's just my wife. And you see, here's the thing. It is an astoundingly unthinkable thing that there should be a physical, spiritual creature that is conscious— that exists. It, the fact that you are a thing that has the capacity for rationality, are entirely physical in your capacity to interact with the physical world in physics and chemistry and biology and all those things, that you are spiritual and able to connect spiritually with God himself, that you are morally and spiritually everlasting, that your body will one day be physically glorified or ultimately damned, but will last everlastingly, that you can create with your body other spiritually everlasting beings. The 
I mean, I, I was talking to somebody about their trip to the Grand Canyon. And he was, show, he was showing this other guy pictures of his trip to the Grand Canyon. Oh no, he was at the Grand Canyon. They had just hiked up out of, the, out of the rim, and they're standing looking at the Grand Canyon. And this guy like pulls up, and he's like in a huff. And he's like, walks up. Two seconds later, he's like, is that all there is? And you're like, and you're, it, that, you shouldn't say that at the edge of the Grand because somebody could just push you in, you know? <laughs> Be like, that's all there is, try it out, you know? Um, and the, this guy who's just come out of, out of the rim, he's been in there for a week, he goes, what do you see? And the guy's like, oh, I see a bunch of rock, right? And so he's telling me this story, and I just couldn't help saying, did you tell him? You're just a bunch of water. Like, how can you not see, how can you not see that it is the arrangement of the rock, that it is what could have been, and what is, and what is not, and how it dynamically functions, and how we experience sublimity in watching, and how can you not be a human? Like, I don't get it. Right? And because you and I have been these things for a while, we have ceased to be astounded at the embodied, spiritual, rational, dynamic, divine image-bearing reality that is our existence. And when that happens, normalcy erodes reality and our ability to be moved by it and constrained by it. And so we just do whatever we want. And we just like, we walk through the world. And then when somebody says, oh, there's this like deeper spiritual thing, we, we all of a sudden like, we're like, really? Really? There's more? How's it? Oh. The only reason that appeals to us at all is because we have become so normalized and astounding. We're like the king that no longer realizes they're king. We're like the general that just thinks everybody orders people around and they just go. We're not like the new president that goes, wait a second, I write a note and an aircraft carrier moves. <laughs> and that phone orders food 24 hours a day? Oh, this only lasts four years. Right? You see, if you and I were able to actually conceptually and emotionally awaken to what we are, these kinds of spiritualities would have no, no hold on us, no appeal to us at all. It is because we have become so accustomed to awesome, so just normalified in amazing, that somebody can come up with something ridiculous, and just because it's not what we normally experience, all of a sudden we get a little intrigued. And it appeals to our sense of anxiety that, oh, there's got to be more to this because we don't really—we don't really know what we are. And it appeals to our vanity to say, just because you're amazing and just like everybody else, what you really need is to become special. You don't need, you don't need to become special! Are you kidding me? It's not scarcity that makes you amazing. It's humanity and bearing the image of God that makes you amazing. Being different from other image bearers should be the last thing you would ever want. It is literally the thing that makes you exactly the same as everybody else that is the special and amazing thing about you, not the difference. And so when we don't see that, when sin darkens us on that, we, go, we, we know there's something wrong, and so we want some kind of enlightenment. 
But we don't want the enlightenment we need because that, that darkness, that darkness is moral. It is morally spiritual darkness. It's not ethereal, which is what these false teachers are selling in the first century and in this century. What always happens, whether it's the old version of this or the new version of this, this kind of spirituality will always do three things with Jesus. One, it'll make Jesus—they'll say Jesus means something private, not public. It's not for the populist pedantry. It's not for th these people. It's just for you. I'm the spiritual one with the real anointing, and I've selected you to know the secret knowledge of real spirituality. That Jesus wasn't the atoning sacrifice of blah, blah, blah. That's what the religious people made him into. What he really was was a mystical cynic person who went to a whole other part of the world and, and experienced enlightenment, and that's what he was trying to teach people, but they couldn't understand it because their minds were so narrow and they were so pedestrian. But I have now realized this, and I can share it with you, and all these people will continue to be religious. But you and I will know the truth because you're special enough. You're special enough to see what I see, right? The second is, is that Jesus means something not doctrinally doctrinal, which is all these doctrines, right? They're like, oh, this whole Jesus is the Son of God and the God is triune and there is sin and pe humans are both sinful. And all this doctrine, blah, blah, blah. My, you know, it's like the old, my karma ran over your, doc your dogma. Karma is dogma. Karma is Hindu dogma about reincarnation and its moral implications. That's what karma is. It is Hindu doctrine, right? Any proposition that you state and you think is true is by definition your doctrine. So if you say, I don't like doctrine, you're saying doctrine isn't important and I think that's true. I— Doctrine isn't aesthetically pleasing, and I think that's true, right? That everything—you literally cannot communicate anything to another human being without doctrine. Doctrine is the thing that links us together. If you have an internal thought or an internal experience, the only way it can be shared with another human being is by you to describe it with a description you think is accurate. If that is a description of something that you think is true, then you're giving doctrinal propositions that are philosophical. If it's something that you believe happened, you are giving a historical narrative that is supposed to be accurately true. And you're saying that really did happen in history. Maybe it's just five minutes ago. And therefore, I'm claiming that is in fact true. Therefore, it is a doctrine. It's a historical doctrine, but it's a doctrine nonetheless. You're stating a proposition you think is true and you think others should believe. And so, this kind of ethereal spirituality derives its doctrine from something that is internal that they can't share with you. And therefore, you have to play shortcuts with this. Because if I have an experience that I can't share with you, right? Like, I, we can't plug into each other, right? It's not like that Avatar movie or whatever, right? Like, you can't do that. So you can't, you can't have like a spiritual experience and be like, ooh, 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 where's my USB cable? You know, and like plug it in the other person, the other person's like, ooh, that's really good. Right? Even if you're like wildly in love with somebody, and the two of you are wildly in love with each other, there is no reason to believe that your, act, your internal states are similar. There's no way to know. There's no way to confirm it. The only way you can even begin to relate about it is by communicating it somehow. 
Now you could try to do it non-verbally, but even if you do it non-verbally, you are still communicating. The other person thinks they're learning something, and that thing they're learning could be turned into sentences that they think are true. So even the way you bat your eyes at them is conveying doctrine. They believe you are stating a true proposition. That's why when you bat your eyes at them and then you dump them from some other guy, they are hurt. Because they thought that meant I like you and I'm not going to change my mind in 10 minutes. Right? So what happens is because the doctrines of this kind of spirituality come out of the emergent self, they're not grounded in very much, but another person's experience that they can't actually share with you unless they describe it. And when they describe it, its feet are kind of planted in midair because you can't verify it because you can't get inside them. And so the, they tend to talk like, well, you know, doctrine's really not important. And then they start talking their doctrine. What they mean is, my doctrine, not your doctrine. My proposition's not your propositions. The truth I think are true, and let's wipe yours away. Let's not argue whether or not the things you think are true are actually true or not. I'm just going to say the whole category of believing in true propositions are false, so I don't even have to have an argument. I'm just going to use a cliche, so we don't even have to talk intelligently. And then I'm just going to dishonestly slip in that whole category I just disqualified to confuse you. Which is crazy and self-defeating and millions of people buy that. And the result of that, if you buy into that kind of redefined ethereal spirituality, is ultimately the importance of the, our embodiedness diminishes. And what that always ends up leading to is the link between spirituality and morality gets less and less conjoined. In Christian spirituality, spirituality and morality are glued together in Christ's spiritual embodiedness in a way that cannot be separated. It's like the old—have you heard the, the, the metaphor like of, of like plywood? So it's wood that's glued together, and the glue is stronger than the wood. So if you try to separate those two pieces of wood, the glue is stronger than the wood, so you'll destroy the wood. You, you, can't, you actually can't separate the two pieces of wood because the glue is too strong. Spirituality and morality in Christian faith, because of who the Christ is, are so inextricably bound together that there is no way to talk about Christian spirituality in non-moral terms. It's why almost all of the talk of the illumination of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament relates to the human conscience. Right? The Spirit comes in and it awakens the conscience which is the moral seat of the human soul and the enlivening of the moral categorizations of the human mind. Now, the Spirit does other things too, but He never does less than that. And that's why in Christian faith, when the Holy Spirit comes on you to save you, what happens? What does the Bible say? It says it, He brings conviction according to righteousness. Now, That's why what John is trying to say to them is not, listen, 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 I can help you get a better anointing. Don't, don't go for that anointing. Don't go for that spirit, that spirituality. I can give you a better one. That's not what he says. He says, you guys, listen, just listen for a second. You already have the anointing. You don't, you, you're, you're getting confused because the anointing, the spiritual anointing of the Holy One that you have already because you're a Christian comes in a way 
to you as you are, which is an embodied person with a moral sense who can believe mental truths. And so what you experience as the spiritual work of God is interacting not just with your spirit, but with your conscience, your heart, your mind, all of your internal faculties to move out through your embodied existence because what your day is made up of is not transcendental spiritual euphoria. What your day is full of is work, screaming children, responsibilities, food, doing dishes, getting cut off in traffic, And so if you get confused about what spirituality is, the spirituality of the Holy Spirit that you have, that anointing that is filling all of these different capacities of your complicated existence doesn't feel spiritual because you've been confused that it's supposed to be this sort of like ineffable, internal, mystical experience that has— and the less it has to do with your embodiedness, the more spiritual it is, which is entirely and 100% the opposite of Christian spirituality. Christian spirit—think about it. What is the absolute height of Christian spirituality lived? One four-letter biblical word. The height of Christian spirituality lived would be what? Love. How do you love people? You sacrificially serve them with your body by committing yourself to their— moral true good because of truths that you know about what the good is and what they are that then makes its way into your spirit and emotion so that your emotions, your emergent self, are full of those values and beliefs and understandings and truths so that all of your emergent spiritual feeling is driven through your body with energy to do what is true for the good of the other embodied person. That is, you love— So the fireman who puts on his stuff and gets in the truck is more spiritual than the person meditating in a closet, Christianly speaking. Prayer is just spiritual preparation for going out and being spiritual. That's why John can definitively say a number of times in 1 John, if a person loves— And remember, when he uses that word, it's carrying all the freight of how Christ has defined it. So it already has a moral, a doctrinal, a propositional, a very clear embodied meaning. It doesn't mean whatever your emergent self feels like it means. It means what Jesus means by it and how he showed its meaning in his life, death, and resurrection. That the person who loves is born of God. We know it. That's all we have to know. To know they're born of God. Because that is the essence of Christian spirituality. It is what happens when one receives the anointing that brings the knowledge of Christ. It always produces love. But love is the most embodied thing possible. And love always, in order to be meaningfully loved, it has to be informed in at least four directions. There has to be truth. There has to be moral clarity. There has to be an understanding of beauty. There has to be an embodiedness. And there has to be emotion. There has to be the spirituality of the internal self. Agreeing with all those things, coming together in the white-hot center of the activity of love. So John's way of dealing with this confusion is to simply say this. Listen, I know all this talk about spirituality can get complicated, but let's make it real simple. 
when God's Spirit, the real Spirit, anoints somebody and they experience a, the God-given, the God-given spiritual experience, what it does is it affirms and glorifies Christ. That's what happens every single time. So therefore, if whatever anointing you think you're receiving, whatever spiritual experience you're having, and you're like, is this a real spiritual experience? John's like, it's real simple. Does this spiritual experience affirm Christ as he has been testified to you by the eyewitnesses? Right? The liar is the person who says, that denies Jesus is the Christ. Because the, uh, the confession that Jesus is the Christ is front and center. And if you go through 1 John, there's at least three things that he means by, you have to confess Jesus. One is that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the Savior. He's God's true prophet, that is, he's the most complete and clear speaker of the truth. And that he's king. He has ultimate authority in all he says in its relationship to us. Second, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is that he is God's exact representation. The clearest way to know what God is like is not to meditate in your inner self and to slow your heartbeat down as much as possible and to have a disassociative experience with your physical self. The most clarifying an accurate understanding a human can possibly have of what God is actually like is to see the character and being of the man Jesus, as showed in his life, death, and resurrection. And third, <clears throat> that Jesus was not an ethereal, spiritual concoction that we saw a vision of but wasn't really physical. He was here embodied in the flesh, and therefore the composite nature of Jesus, and therefore of us, and therefore the fundamentally spiritual and moral nature of Christian spirituality is assured. Because here's what happens whenever these things happen, and this was true in the first century, it's been true all through history. When this kind of spirituality is concocted, what always comes from it is freedom from morality. I can do what I want with this because this isn't spiritually significant. I don't know if you know this, but almost all the ancient religions, spirituality and morality were completely not associated with each other. There were a few places where they were, they were associated in certain ways. There were certain gods that cared about certain things. And for example, in Egyptian religion, in Egyptian religion, you had to go through the feather ceremony thing and the, like, the morality was important there. But not in Greek religion and not in Roman religion. It was very pragmatic. You want to make a good speech, you sacrifice a chicken to Hermes and sleep with whoever you want. And it was Judaism and then Christianity growing out of that that brought in full force to the whole world this idea that, no, it's how God teaches us our, what our existence means and then what love is on the basis of faith and hope that is spirituality. And one of the main things that, that John is getting at is how, how did we get so confused about this? You see, what John says in John 3 and John's gospel, which comes before this in the Bible, is that he said, here is the real spiritual conundrum. It's not whether or not you can have a dissociative internal experience spiritually and somehow feel out of your body and therefore merely spiritual, and then whatever realization you have in that place is what's really true. He says, here's the real spiritual conundrum. He says in John 3, men and women love darkness. They love darkness. And they don't want to be humiliated by the light shining on them and demonstrating what they're really like. 
and so they hide in the darkness. But the truth is in the light. And so every human being is stuck in this place where they don't want to be humiliated by coming into the light and their wickedness be shown, but it's in the light where the truth is. And there's this terrible conundrum that all humanity faces, and it's moral. And as they remain in the darkness because they want to stay hidden, they are also benighted in their sight of everything. Everything is darkened for them. And they don't see the truth, and they can't see the truth. And what they need is an illumination of the truth. In a pastor's meeting I was at this last week, a pastor quoted this verse in praying about the glory of heaven that God was going to give us. He's like, we're so, God, we're so thankful and looking forward to eternity where no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, or mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven is going to be so great. We've never conceived how great it's going to be. And that, it always annoys me when people do that because that's actually not what that verse is about. Now that verse is probably true of heaven. I mean, we probably haven't thought of what heaven's really going to be like. But that's actually not what that verse is about. If you read the verse in its context in 1 Corinthians, it says this, and notice how Paul, this is a different biblical author, same Holy Spirit inspiring him. He's going after the same fake spirituality view. You see what he says? No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. Remember just before I said, this kind of spirituality always says, no, the real truth is this secret thing that comes from this internal experience. He's like, oh, no, no, no. Their secret wisdom of God, a wisdom that has been hidden— and that God is destined for our glory before time began. There is this special glory. There is this hidden wisdom. It's totally true. Here's the problem. That's a historical fact, because now in Christ, it's become totally public to the most pedestrian ne'er-do-well that could possibly exist so long as he sees the beauty of Jesus. Because he says, look, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That is, this secret wisdom that's been hidden— that is for our glory is wrapped up in the Lord of glory and nobody of this age saw it because if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the thing that God had prepared for those who would love him. It is Jesus, God Almighty, becoming man to save all of humanity, to show us what God was like, to show us what spirituality is really like, to show us what truth is, to show us how we can come out of the darkness and into the light, to show us what embodied love actually looks like by having his body broken on the cross, in which he showed us what God really believes about what we were meant to be, and what you are meant to be, really— your eye has probably never seen in your mind's eye. The internal speaking of your, of your many voices has probably never uttered, and it has probably never into the, entered into the conscience of your imagination what you really are and what you were really meant to be and what Christ will really make you. And he says, that's why there is an anointing. That's why there's a spirit, right? But— so all of the religious leaders, all of the rulers, all the people who were in the know didn't know. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. This thing, the first thing, Jesus crucified and risen, is the deepest thing of God. The Spirit searches that, and when and his anointing and knowledge comes— that anointing and knowledge says, Jesus is the illuminated one. He illuminates the beauty and glory of Jesus. He shows that we can walk out of darkness into light. He shows what we're meant to be as embodied spiritual creatures that are spiritual and emotional and physical and mental and doctrinal. 
And so what's left for us then to do is to not find some spiritual state that somebody else is talking about that may or may not be true and may be a product as much of their narcissism as their spiritual seeking or their book selling, frankly, in this day and age. But instead, there's this word that John really loves that we just translate abide. The newer translations say remain, but it's, that's kind of a weak translation. To abide means to stay in something, to stay connected to something, to stay within something. And he says, here's what's left for you to do. It's that the message of the gospel and the anointing of the Spirit that gives you knowledge and teaches you, you need to stay in that. Right? He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, the message of the gospel. Let what you heard from the beginning, that it does abide in you. He's like, if you're a Christian, it already abides in you, and now you should then confirm that by like trying to stay and remain in it. And he just goes on and on. You, it, then you too will abide in love and God and, and Christ and Christ in you. And then he talks about the spiritual anointing. He says that spirit, it's not just the message of the gospel you've heard preached that is doctrinal and propositional and a witness. It's also the internal experience of God's spirit. When you have an internal spiritual experience that affirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and has come in the flesh, that spiritual leading can teach you, and it's real, and you should remain in it. You should embrace it. That spiritual leading is helpful when it's confirmed by Christ. The place where um, he talks about this the most is actually in John's Gospel in chapter 15. And the, the image is of a grapevine, and there's the main stalk, and then there's—that's God. And then there's the branches, that's us, and then they're supposed to bear fruit. And he says, listen, it's only when the, the branch is actually drawing the sap, the spiritual sap, from the vine, that it can remain alive and it can produce fruit. And that's what he's saying in this passage, too. He's saying, if you realize that, that what these other teachers are teaching is deception, that, it, that it's actually unhinging you from your humanity rather than revealing to you a real spirituality. When you realize that the height of God's wisdom is the human God-man, Jesus. When you realize that he is the Christ, the real revelation of the character of God, and, the and true embodied humanity. When you carry that truth with the spiritual anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you go out into your life ready to listen— to what that Spirit will teach you on the basis of knowing who Christ is, you will learn everywhere at every moment. And you don't need these ethereal spiritual teachers that are trying to convince you to listen to whatever bubbles up inside of you or to have a non-human experience in order to be more human. But you will realize that the Spirit will teach you every day in every place, doing everything that you do, how to love what is true, what is right, what is beautiful, and how to live embodied spiritually, full of passion and piety, and yet full of truth and nobility, living in beauty, <clears throat> and using your body in total union with the spiritual creature God has made you to be forever. We need to realize that there is a lot of anti-Christ out there. People who even want to tell you that they are teaching you Christianity and they'll use the name Christ or they'll use the name Jesus and they'll, they'll just tell you, you don't know what Jesus is really like, let me tell you. And you need to realize that all you have to really do is be like, yeah, you tell me about the Jesus you're talking about. And you just listen for, is he the Christ? Is he the atoning sacrifice? Is he the son of God incarnate? 
Did he come in the flesh? And you will find that one or more of those, they will try to slide past to create a totally different picture of Jesus that fits their philosophy. But that's just to protect us. But for us to actually experience the positive spirituality that will put us in a place where we won't fall for that is to realize if you believe in Jesus, you have already experienced an incredible spiritual illumination because none of the rulers of this world could ever have imagined, no, I had seen or my conceived or had entered into the conscience of anyone what God actually was doing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Himself, God becoming incarnate, freeing people, showing us what we were meant to be. Nobody realized that. And if you believe in Jesus, you have been illuminated through an anointing that rests on you. And that same spirit is in you wishing to teach you on the basis of that Christ how that Christ, and therefore you, relate to everything in the world, every place, and what the truth is about it, what's good in relationship to it, and how as an embodied creature you can love through it. You have the anointing if you believe in Jesus. If you have the grace to believe in Jesus and you haven't, and you see it, then that anointing is just beginning to rest on you, and you should believe in Jesus. You should come to him right now, and you should receive that anointing and the knowledge that comes with it. And then, friends, all you have left to do is to remain connected to the spiritual sap of that vine, to abide in, to remain in Jesus, and to let him teach you as you walk. And if you do, that anointing that affirms Jesus— can have the effect of assuring you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would take this passage and what I've said about it that has a negative tone because it's meant to combat deception, and I pray that it would have the differentiating effect of helping us see the vast difference between the way spirituality is usually talked about in our culture and the way be, ha, receiving the anointing of the Spirit is talked about in your scriptures and is revealed through Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be fully rooted in the completeness of Christ crucified and risen, coming in the flesh as the Son of God, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and to so see that in its glory and to see what you've made us to be in its glory— and that you've destined Christ for our glory before the world began, and for that to so capture us that we would go out and we would ask you through your anointing in us by the Holy Spirit to teach us more about what that means, and for us to be open to all of the things you would show us in terms of truth, morality, passion, conscience, mentality, truthfulness, faith, hope, and love expressed through our bodies, loving our neighbors, and loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.